I um, have a friend who for years was a missionary to um, communities in the southeastern part of the United States in Appalachia. And uh, when he first moved into that community, he uh, noticed that people were frequently flying flags on appropriate occasions, like uh, the 4th of July. And uh, since he was a patriot and he very much wanted to fit into the community, he bought a flag and began to uh, fly it. And one day in his uh, haste to get the flag down, it was evening and he was in a hurry, he pulled it down quickly and wadded it up and put it under his arm and he started for the front door and he heard a shout across the street and turned to see his neighbor uh, making his way over to his home. And uh, for the next five uh, minutes or so, he was dressed down and given a lesson on how to take care of the flag and how to honor it. And my friend was properly chagrined because he did want to make a good impression in that community and uh, told the man he was very sorry and that he would try to follow proper protocol from that point on and uh, went back into the house. Well, uh, the next morning he got up and he looked out of the window and he saw the sheriff's uh, vehicle parked in front of his neighbor's house. And uh, his friend was, his neighbor was being led to the, to the uh, car, manacled to the sheriff. And he discovered later that his neighbor had a still in his barn and he was producing uh, illegal moonshine whiskey. And the thought that occurred to him is that he had the uh, symbol correct. He understood the symbol and the meaning of the symbol. Uh, but he had, uh, he misunderstood the real meaning of patriotism. And uh, I re remembered that story yesterday as I saw all the flags uh, up on the flagpoles. And it occurred to me that that often is the way people approach the book of Revelation. They want to understand all the symbols and their meaning. And they know that the first beast is the uh, head of the Western Empire, the Western of Western civilization, and the second beast is the head of the great religious movement of that day, and they know who the dragon is, and they can identify all the symbols. But uh, in getting their eschatological timelines set up and dis determining when the Lord is going to come and all these other factors, they really miss the real meaning of the book of Revelation. The book is intended to teach us how to live life right now. In the midst of our present distress, uh, there is a time coming described in the book of Revelation as the time of Jacob's trouble, this uh, period of intense distress seven years before the coming of our Lord. And uh, the book is written to teach us how to live then, but it's also intended to teach us how to live life now, how to be God's men and women in the midst of our, of our own personal distressing circumstances. Now with that in the back of our mind, let's turn, turn to the 16th chapter of the book of Revelation. As we saw last week, chapter 15 is the introduction to the seven bowls uh, of wrath as they're described in chapter 16. John sees seven avenging angels who have seven plagues going out of the sanctuary sent from the presence of God to pour out their bowls of wrath upon the human race. And uh, that action is described in chapter 16. Now John tells us that these, the action of these angels is symbolic of the last expression of God's wrath. He tells us in chapter 15 that with this outpouring of God's anger, His anger is over. His love will never end, but uh, there is a time when His anger will come to an end. 
whenever we talk about the wrath of God or His anger, it disturbs people. It, it brings about a, a real moral and ethical question. How can we reconcile the anger of God with what we know of gentle Jesus, meek and mild, as the song puts it? Well, in the first place, uh, the song is an error. Uh, our Lord is not meek and mild. He was truly meek, that is, non-defensive, but He was not mild. There were some things that angered the Lord Jesus uh, greatly. It's not wrong to be angry. Self-centered anger is wrong, of course. When people uh, take uh, away my privacy or some right that I feel is mine and I react in anger, then that's wrong. But it's not wrong to be angry when someone else's rights are assaulted. We ought to be angry. And the Lord was. And God is angry because of the invasion of sin throughout the human race. It hurts the quality of human life. It destroys people. And therefore, God gets angry. Now, uh, we're inclined to see that, that anger is justified if the wickedness of man is gross enough. That is, we, uh, we, we believe that God ought to take action against those that purvey uh, pornography, uh, against uh, dope dealers and murders and rapists. But uh, if, we, if we take that view, we really have a very short-sighted view of sin because all sin affects the quality of human life. And even our... Uh, the, the quieter, more spiritual sins of, of our spirit, uh, pride and resentment and bitterness and anger, these inveigh against the quality of, of human life as well. And if God is going to act against the big sins of mankind, He has to act against those small sins or those that we call uh, small just as well. And uh, what He does is act in one of two ways. Scripture tells us that at the present time, God is not, uh, he's not dealing uh, with man uh, in, a, in a wrathful, angry, ultimate way. That's yet coming. God is letting man have his own way and, uh, and, and wreak havoc wherever he goes. God gives us the right to do that. But uh, there is a, a time when man will get his comeuppance and our wickedness will be judged. And that form of judgment is yet to come. But in the meantime, God is working out his wrath through what we call the law of inevitable consequence. That is, he's, he lets us go and lets us reap what we sow. That's the wrath of God that's described in the first chapter of Revelation, or first chapter of Romans. Paul says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all wickedness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth through their unrighteousness. And then he goes on to describe that wrath as God giving men over to their sinful ways. He lets them do as they please. And if they wreck and ruin their lives, then those are simply the consequences that are the result of the actions that, uh, that they take. Sometimes that wrath, the consequences of our actions, are quite pointed indeed. Uh, I, uh, some years ago, had a man come in to uh, talk to me about a, a very distressing situation in his life. He was a traveling uh, salesman, traveled quite a bit throughout the West Coast. And uh, he did business in the city where his daughter attended uh, school. She was in a university there, working her way through school. And uh, he spent some time with her, and then he went back to his hotel room. And uh, while he was, while he was uh, talking to the clerk, the hotel clerk, he was propositioned. And he succumbed to it and uh, asked that a girl be sent to his room. 
And he went up to his room and was waiting for her to appear. And she knocked on the door, and he opened the door, and it was his daughter. And she was working her way through school as a prostitute in that community. And all of a sudden, his world just fell apart. He, he didn't realize that this action could be... He, he felt that he could take this action with impunity, without any uh, fear of consequence. No one would know. He would never be discovered. But uh, he was found out. Now, that is the wrath of God that's working its way out through humanity right now. Now, as we look at chapter 16, I think we'll see both of those aspects of the wrath of God. There is the future, final, ultimate judgment of God upon the human race that's described here in chapter 16. And there is this ongoing wrath of God that is the law of inevitable consequence that uh, is at work now in, uh, in the human race. Now, let's look at chapter 16. John writes, I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out the seven bowls of the wrath of God into the earth. And the first angel went and poured out his bowl into the earth, and it became a loathsome and malignant sore upon the men who had the mark of the beast and who worshipped his image. Now, as always, the, the real problem is how shall we interpret these symbols? Shall we take them literally, or, or shall we see them symbolically? Now, uh, as you know, uh, as we've studied this book, I've opted uh, almost consistently for the symbolic interpretation of, of, of these events because I think that's more in keeping with the type of literature that we're dealing with here. This is apocalyptic literature. It's a type of literature that's well-known in John's day. And as he sees these things unfold, he simply records them knowing that they will be interpreted symbolically as all of this literature was. Therefore, when he talks about sores... Uh, some form of disease breaking out upon mankind. For myself, I believe we can see this not as a literal sickness, uh, the result of nuclear warfare or something of this nature, but rather as a symbol of the hurt and the pain that is always the result of sin. We think that we can get away with disobedience, but we can't. It always causes pain and hurt. And what Paul describes is death existential death. It results in uh, loneliness and a feeling of alienation from, uh, from those around us, those that we want to, uh, to love us and appreciate us. It results in fear and anxiety and worry and uh, depression and hostility. Uh, it's, it, it produces death and hurt and pain. And I believe this is what John is describing symbolically as uh, a malignant and, and a noxious uh, disease that pervades the human race. Now, we're told that this disease falls upon those who worship the beast and who, have, and who bear his mark. That is, there are those who are trusting in themselves, who are counting upon themselves. The mark of the beast, as we've seen, is not some literal mark upon the body but rather a symbolic way of describing the worship of man. Man becomes all-important, what man does. We depend upon ourselves and our technology and, and uh, our, uh, uh, what man can do with his hands and with his mind and with his body. Man becomes the measure of everything. And instead of believing and counting and relying upon God and His strength, we count on man. 
and the, and the result is pain and anguish. Now, it will be true as John describes it for us in that day, and it's, it's true today. Uh, some years ago, a friend of mine, Ron Ritchie, and I had a, had a funeral for a biker that had been killed in a, in, a, in a street fight in San Francisco. We knew this young man. He had recently become a Christian. And uh, through an accident, his life was taken. And uh, the bikers from San Francisco and Oakland and all around the Bay Area gathered for this uh, funeral. It was uh, quite interesting, to say the least. We gathered in a little park where there was a lake in the Santa Cruz Mountains. And uh, they drove their big choppers up to the lake and got off and sat around on the grass. And uh, Ron and I had an opportunity to, to preach the gospel to them. And afterwards, uh, a young man in a, a greasy set of leathers and a pigtail walked up and uh, he said, You know, he said, I have a putt and a pad and an old lady. He said, But I don't have no peace. Now, the three things that he mentioned, a putt, that is a motorcycle, and a pad, a place to stay, and a, and a woman, a girlfriend, were apparently the essence of life to a biker. And, uh, and he had those things, but as he puts it, I don't have any peace. Now, it doesn't make any difference who you are. You may have a Mercedes and a condominium and a beautiful and lovely girlfriend, but if that's the essence of life, if that's all you have, then you don't have any peace. Now, that's what John sees. He sees a world that's gone mad, a world that's full of pain and hurt and anguish because people have excluded God from their life. Now, the second bowl, as it's described in verse 3, the second and third, are poured out into the sea, and the sea became blood like that of a dead man, and every living thing in the sea died. And the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the water saying, Righteous art thou who art and who wast, O holy one, because thou didst judge these things. For they poured out the blood of saints and prophets, and thou hast given them blood to drink. They deserve it. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, O Lord God, the Almighty, true and righteous are thy judgments. They are deserving of this judgment because they took the lives of saints and prophets. They live by the sword, and they shall die by the sword. And what John sees is a terrible thing here, really too terrible to describe. It's a, he describes his blood as of a dead man. That is, he sees the seas turning into coagulated blood. And the streams where you would expect to find purity are equally polluted. Now, again, I don't think that uh, we necessarily need to take this symbol literally. There was a time in history when this occurred uh, during the uh, period of the exodus from Egypt. God certainly could do this. It seems to me, on the other hand, that what John is describing here is a symbol for violence and bloodshed, widespread violence, the taking of human life uh, without any regard for the value of human life. Uh, earlier in Revelation, we saw the same idea symbolized as blood flowing to the level of a horse's bridle, particularly in the land of Palestine. As this great wave of anti-Semitic activity begins to take effect, uh, become a part of people's thinking, and first those in the land of Palestine are put to death, and then this blood spread sheds, uh, bloodshed spreads throughout the entire world. This seems to be what John is describing. And... Uh, the seeds of it are being planted right now. Uh, it's surprising to me what I can view now 
on a movie screen or a TV screen without being shocked by it. We're being inured, desensitized to violence on every hand. The things that earlier would have uh, caused a reaction no longer cause one because uh, life seems cheap. We see life taken daily. Someone has said that uh, by the time a, a young person has, uh, has watched television through their high school years, they've seen 3,000 murders. Uh, and uh, that sort of thing simply desensitizes us. Plato, in his idea of the perfect society, uh, the Republic, says that he would not uh, permit violence to be, to be portrayed on the stage because it desensitizes people to human need. Now, that's what's happening. You see, the seeds are being planted now. And uh, the time will come when, as Jesus described it in Matthew 24, when were it not for God's intervention, there would be no life spared. Every life would be taken. And I believe that's symbolized here, this, that great bloodbath, as the seas and the streams and springs becoming blood. Then in verse 8, the fourth angel poured out his bowl upon the sun, and it was given to him to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with fierce heat, and they blasphemed the name of God who has the power over these plagues, and they did not repent so as to give him glory. I believe this is a description of the heat that people will feel during the time that the beast and his armies are marching throughout the, uh, throughout the world. It will be a time of oppression and heavy taxation and conscription for military service and... Uh, Employers, without any regard for their employees, will drive them to succeed without regard for their families or their health or their personal life. It's a picture of the harshness and the hardness of life at this time. We have the same idiom in English when we talk about the heat being on. Well, during this time, the heat will be on. Life will be harsh and hard. But uh, John, as he observes this scene, says men will not repent. The, the harder things become, the harder men's hearts become. They actually blame God for their troubles. That's typical of us, you know. We, we get ourselves in the worst jams because we don't want to listen to God. We uh, trip through life and live it as we want to live it, ignore God, push Him out to the perimeter of our lives, just live for ourselves, live to make money or to amass power, prestige or glory for ourselves. And then we get ourselves in a fix. And who do we blame? We start cursing God and blaming God. And why did God let me get into this, this mess? And that's what's happening here. As life becomes hard and harsh, men's hearts become hard. It's very much like uh, uh, the uh, period of the Exodus and the plagues with which God uh, plagued the nation of, of Egypt. Pharaoh, as with each successive plague, became harder and harder of heart. And then in verses 10 and 11, the fifth angel pours out his bowl upon the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became darkened, and they gnawed their tongues because of pain, and they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. I would say here again that the darkness, again, is not literal, but rather symbolic of the moral darkness that will prevail at that time. Men will have no anchoring point. They won't believe anything. There, there will be no standards of right and wrong. No way to judge the value or the worth of human life or the actions that those, those humans take. It's uh, described otherwise in Ephesians 4 in this way. 
This is Paul's description of the of the same human condition. He describes the Gentiles who walk in the futility or the emptiness of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. That's the starting point. They harden their heart, and then they become ignorant of even the basic facts of life, and then a great darkness prevails. And they then, having become callous, give themselves over to sensuality, that is, to self-indulgence, for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. In other words, they, uh, they want more. They want more and more impurity. And uh, apparently that condition will, will prevail in this last, uh, last hour. And then in verse 12, we're told that the sixth angel poured out his bowl upon the great river, the Euphrates, and its water was dried up that the way might be prepared for the kings from the east. That's this uh, great uh, horde, an army of 100 million or more that come across the Euphrates in the last three-and-a-half-year period of human history. And uh, John says, I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, that is Satan, and out of the mouth of the beast, that's the first beast, the political leader, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, the second beast, the religious leader, of that day, three unclean spirits like frogs. Uh, these are not Muppets, but uh, this is not Kermit. But uh, they're uh, demons. We're told in verse 14 they are the spirits of demons, described as uh, unclean frogs. Frogs uh, are a very apt symbol, I think, of demonic uh, activity, slimy, loathsome things with their incessant, meaningless croaking. And... Uh, they perform signs and gather the kings of the whole world together for the war of the great day of God, the Almighty. And then in verse 16, they gather them together to the place which in Hebrew is called Har-Mageddon. You'll recognize this is the setting from which Rudyard Kipling gets uh, the ballad of East and West. O East is East and West is West and never the twain shall meet till earth and sky stand presently neath God's great judgment seat. This is the great gathering of all the nations of the world in Palestine uh, in an attempt to try to push God out of his universe. Uh, for myself, I don't quite know what will cause them to gather. It may be their animosity for the Jews because of this wave of anti-Semitic propaganda that, uh, that deceives the entire world. But uh, through the activity of these uh, demonic agencies, they, the kings of the world will be gathered at Armageddon. Uh, Armageddon is... Um, a term that means the hill of Megiddo. Har is the Hebrew word or Aramaic word for a tell or a hill. And Megiddo is the, is the city of Megiddo, ancient uh, uh, city that was the... Uh, was the it, it protected the interior of the land of Palestine. Any, any army coming in from the west through the coastal plains would have to pass that point. And uh, the great valley of Megiddo or the valley of, of Esdraelon has become symbolic for this final great cosmic conflict between God and the forces of, of man. The warfare is waged on that spot for years. That's the, the armies of Egypt fought there. Israel fought there many times. Uh, Napoleon said that this was a place where all the armies of the world could be gathered at one time. And it's here that this great and final conflict takes place that will be described for us later in the book of Revelation. The Lord comes back to fight for His own and man once for all 
and all of his schemes for a better world apart from God will come to an end. It's interesting. Just this past week, I read that Yuri Geller, who is, you know, the Israeli psychic, who is uh, apparently able to move objects by just the mere use of his mind. Apparently, many of his, uh, of his, uh, uh, the things he's able to do have been documented scientifically. He apparently can move objects mentally. Uh, He admitted a couple of weeks ago that he has been receiving visitors, extraterrestrial visitors, from the planet Hoover, and that's where he gets his power. And as you know, Geller is being courted by kings and leaders, uh, just as uh, Hitler courted uh, mediums and occultists of his day, uh, to seek counsel from him. And Geller apparently is demon-possessed. That's where he gets his power. That's what these extraterrestrials are. They aren't people from outer space. They're, they're demons right out of the pit of hell. And uh, they're making, uh, having an effect upon his life. And he apparently, like these uh, so-called frogs, uh, will have a great effect upon the kings of the world during this time. They will gather them together for this uh, final, ultimate battle against God at the side of Armageddon. And then the seventh angel in verse 17 pours out his bowl upon the air. And a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. It's over. This is it. The wrath of God is finished with his seventh bowl. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there was a great earthquake such as there had not been since man came to be upon the earth. So great an earthquake was it and so mighty. And the great city was split into three parts. And the cities of the nations fell. And Babylon the great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. And every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. And huge hailstones, about 100 pounds each, came down from heaven upon men. And men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, because its plague was extremely severe. So here, even to the end, men still will not repent. They continue to blaspheme God. The city Babylon is described here is not the ancient city that was uh, located along the Euphrates. It's not a symbolic reference for the city of Rome. It's rather a symbol for the city of man. It's, uh, it's man's society as he wants to build it without God. Um, man has always had an idea of the kind of city that uh, ought to exist. Hebrew scholars tell us that the Hebrew word for city, ear, uh, was originally a cry of alarm. When people were under attack, they would flee to the city and find protection there. But uh, anyone who knows anything of the inner city knows that today the city is a place from which people are fleeing for refuge into the country because the city has become degraded in places where there's awful violence and and centers of of evil. That's what man's city becomes. And if you listen to men and their descriptions of, of urban renewal, they will talk in terms of, of, of uh, parks and, and uh, beautiful scenery and, and lovely buildings, architecture and culture and uh, educational institutions and pouring vast amounts of money into the city in order to alleviate po- uh, poverty and, and ignorance. But not once do they mention the part that God plays in all of this. Not once is the name of Jesus Christ uh, uh, mentioned as, as a solution to the problem that man faces in the city. And because of man's stubbornness to respond to God's answer to the perfect society, 
the city collapses. The description here of the city splitting into three parts, the great city, is simply a symbol for the total collapse of all of man's dreams and his plans and his aspirations for society. Now, this is the final, ultimate expression of the wrath of God. Uh, God permits these forces that are now at work to work their way out to, to their ultimate conclusion. And the result is darkness and hardness and coldness. Uh, C.S. Lewis put it this way. People often think of Christian morality as a kind of bargain in which God says, if you keep a lot of rules, I'll reward you, and if you don't, I'll do the other thing. I do not think that is the best way of looking at it. I would much rather say that every time you make a choice, you are turning the central part of you, the part of you that chooses, into something a little different from what it was before. And taking your life as a whole with all your innumerable choices... All your life long, you are slowly turning the central thing either into a heavenly creature or into a hellish thing, either into a creature that is in harmony with God and with other creatures and with itself, or else into one that is in a state of war and hatred with God and with its fellow creatures and with itself. To be the one kind of creation is heaven, that is, joy and peace and knowledge and power. To be the other means madness, horror, idiocy, rage, impotence and eternal loneliness. And that's what God sees as He looks at our society because of the choices we have repeatedly made. We have, have caused the world to turn mad. And it's a place of loneliness and emptiness and darkness and strife and bitterness and hurt and pain. And we live in it. So what do we do? How will we live through these times that are described here in chapter 16? How will we live today? Because as, as I pointed out repeatedly, the forces that will, are at work to bring about ultimate judgment are at work now. We're living in these times uh, that, that are described here. These things are going on. How shall we live? Well, John writes for us in verse 15, the words of our Lord. Actually, a quotation from the book of Luke. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his garments, lest he walk about naked and men see his shame. In other words, he says this to me and all of us, let's wake up. Don't live in the dream world that the world is living in. You can live in a world of reality while everyone else is asleep. While everyone else buys the lie and believes that man's technology and what man can do is the answer. If you've read Toffler's book, The Third Wave, you know that uh, what Toffler suggests is a new wave that will undo all of the awful things that man has done to himself through the agricultural revolution and the industrial revolution. And there's coming a new age of man. A millennium, a time when man is going to bring, bring in the world that everyone has been looking for, where there will be peace and prosperity and, and quietness of heart, and men will be sensitive to one another, and there will be love, and, and will care for each other, and it's all a dream. Because not once does he bring into it the fact of the presence of God in everyday affairs. So let's don't dream. Let's be realists. Let's stay awake. Let's recognize that man... Apart from God cannot be man. A woman apart from God cannot be a woman. It takes God to make you whole. And we must stay awake. The only way to stay awake is to put your roots down into the Word. 
That's the only way, because that's where reality lies. It's not out there in Time Magazine, Reader's Digest, Ladies' Home Journal, you know, bits and pieces of truth, mixtures of truth and error. But uh, it's easy to be deceived. And, you know, I, I find during the summertime that I get downright lazy. I don't want to do anything. I'm up late at night, and uh, you don't want to go to bed when the sun's up, so it's hard to, hard to get up in the morning. So I can go for days without looking at the book that keeps me awake. And I start thinking like the world does. Yeah, what, really what would make me a little happier is a little more money or a little better house or a better vehicle or some clothes or a cabin in the mountains or whatever. And there's nothing wrong with any of that, but of itself, it will not give us what man is looking for. It will just result in hurt and pain and more anguish. And the more we get, the more we want, and our longings will never be satisfied. So we need to believe the truth, put our roots down into the Word and believe it, and begin to live it out in the world. Because it's those who are living God-like lives in the midst of this awful scene that will have the greatest impact upon their times. It's not the politicians. It's not the military leaders. It's those who love the Lamb and who follow Him wherever He goes that will leave behind a lasting impression. And remember again, it all depends upon God. As we saw last week, we need to struggle against sin and resist temptation and turn away from the lie when we hear it. We have to choose. But what it really comes down to is God's activity in us. As Paul puts it, faithful is he who has called you, and he will do it. George MacDonald uh, put it this way, God is easy to please, but he's hard to satisfy. He's easy to please, but he's hard to satisfy. He's like a father who delights to see his children, his, his child, begin to walk. But he'll never be satisfied until he walks like a man. And that's the way God looks at us. He's delighted when we make these first steps. He's not disappointed when we fail. He doesn't turn away from us when we fail repeatedly even. But He's promised that He's going to continue the work that He's begun in, begun in us until the day of Christ. And He will not be satisfied until we're everything that God intends us to be. So let's trust Him. Let's believe Him. Let's count on Him. As Jesus put it, I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he brings forth much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. Let's pray. Let's stand together as we pray. <clears throat> Father, you have called us sons of God, and we are. It's not merely a name that you attribute to us, but it's a reality. We belong to you. We're part of your family. We share your life. We are joint heirs with your son, Jesus Christ. We have access to all the resources that, uh, to which he had access. Help us to believe that, Father, and to know that there simply is no situation for which there is not an equal and corresponding resource that we can draw from. Forgive us, Father, for the times that we quit, for the times that we think it's too much. We simply can't go on. And uh, give us the faith to believe that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. 
And as we go out into a world in which we find the, the forces that we see described in this chapter, we see the emptiness of people around us. and They're longing for something more than the things that occupy their time and interests. We pray that we might be sensitive to their spirits and loving toward them and willing to speak a word in season to those that are, that are weary and hurting. Help us to be redeeming, saving elements, agents in the world. Thank you that you make it possible. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.